But, but then, then I hit a bad part, part of my career. About 1954, when I, I started writing the worst trashy stuff you ever, none of that stuff was great. You know, I like it. It was, you know, complete, you know, started out very good. I started a really good writer under Tony Boxer's direction. And in 53, 1953, I sold 27 stories that year. And 26 of the 27 were rotten, worthless pieces of fiction. And my agent had to tell me, you know, his best friends won't tell him. My agent said, Phil, write fewer, better stories. Hey, dickheads, I got pink laser beam of truth beaming straight from San Diego, California to your brain hole. We are the Vulcan 1, 2, and 3. And if you want to submit your questions to us and Unity Control, we may let you live. So, <laughs> that was a good one, David. All right, thank you. Uh, today, oh, we should introduce ourselves. We are your personal dickheads. Well, uh, you were nailing it for a second. I was. But <laughs> not now. Then it all fell apart. <laughs> we are your personal dickheads. To my left is Anthony Trevino, author of King Space Void, the horror comic fruition, and frequent contributor to a bunch of random websites about pop culture and horror. And I am David Agronoff. I am the author of Punk Rock Ghost Story, The Vegan Revolution with Zombies, and I co-wrote Flesh Trade with Ed Morris, which is a science fiction novel, and... And I'm Langhorn J. Tweed. That's my boy. There we go. Keeping it consistent. I like it. <laughs> All right. So, today uh, we're going to get started with some PKD news. We don't go too far into this for two reasons. One, there's not a lot of it. And two, uh, that kind of time stamps our episodes, and we want people to be able to listen at their leisure as they read through the PKD catalog on their own. So, the first bit of news is the fifth annual Philip K. Dick European Science Fiction Film Festival happened since the last time we recorded. We were not invited. No. And we don't have the money to go to Europe for a film festival. David, don't tell them that. Well... Eventually, you'll be able to support us on Patreon. Uh, eventually. Eventually. So maybe you could send 2020. us. 2020. For the 18th annual Dick <laughs> <laughs> Film Festival, maybe by then. Uh, so uh, there's a whole list of, there was a bunch of different categories and awards that were given. I'm not going to go through them all, um, but you can look them up if you want to. But two clear ones was... Um, Best Phil K. Dick short adaptation called It's a Clear Day. One That was the one that... So there must have been enough entries that there was an award category for PKD adaptation. And then Best Science Fiction Short uh, Original was one called Meta Via. And so that's kind of interesting. So I want to see all these films that were in there but unfortunately i can't get to europe for it and right. i would like to point out that if anybody knows of short films or if they've done a short film that's based off of a pkd work i'd like to see it yeah drop send us, us your vimeo password so we can watch it <laughs> and then uh yeah maybe we'll uh, interview you for the show Long down the line. David says lucky, maybe, but I'm lucky saying you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> David says maybe, but I'm, I'll, I'll say, yeah, we probably will. All right. So the next thing. Now, Larry, you're a fan of, you've, you've listened to the Vallis Brain Opera, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, I didn't say I was a fan. Oh, okay. I mean, there's a, it's a very mixed bag. Okay. Well, the guy behind it, uh, Todd 
uh, Mockover. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's created a second, a second, um, what he calls Brain Opera. Nice. Starring robots, robots, robants. Uh, and he says it's inspired also by PKD's Valus. He's really into that. Yeah. And um, so, and he had a premiere Wednesday night in this last Wednesday in Boston at Emerson College. So that's cool. interesting. Yeah. So a second Valus opera. Maybe he should branch out to a different novel. I don't know. Well, the uh, you know the stage is where the word robot comes from. So that's true. That's true. Robent. Um, but yeah, those are the only two pieces of PKD news that um, I found. So I'm uh, definitely interested and someday hope to get to to the PKD film yeah. festival. Yeah, that sounds but, awesome. Yeah, but there's a we don't have one in the states at all. I think there is one in New York. Um, well, we certainly wouldn't have one in San Diego, Larry. No, 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 no. But uh, we are close to uh, Philip K. Dick's papers uh, here. True. So that's kind of cool. So uh, let's get on to the Dick-like suggestions. Do you want to kick us off, Larry? I I will, if you want me to. Sure. All right, so this time my <laughs> Dick-like suggestion is the game Californium. Which is by it was I don't I don't know the studio. It's a it's basically an education channel in France and Germany that came out with a video game. And for some reason, even though they normally don't do video games, they came out with this video game that's all about uh, Philip K. Dick's life. Yeah, I think this was actually in the PKD news in one of our early episodes. Is it like to get out of the house? You must do. This much methamphetamines. <laughs> no, it is it, well, kind of, <laughs> but it's it's a basically it, it's a walking simulator, which is okay. in in video the you know video game terms is usually uh, code for boring. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna have to spell that out for for David over here. <laughs> but I like Galaga. <laughs> right. Oh my god! <laughs> but I want to read their uh, at least the guy. first paragraph of their little blurb here that they have about the game. Taking the form of wacky shenanigans and a first-person experience of a bad trip, Californium pays homage to sci-fi legend Philip K. Dick. And then blah, 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 all the things he did. By transporting you into the life of a writer who is searching for his own identity. Will you find what's behind the simulacra? Simulacra. I could never say that word. You said it right. Simulacra. Simulacra. Yeah, I think that's right. Cool. Uh, but it's a... Because <laughs> I'm uh, such an authority at how to say things. Basically, it's a, it's a walking simulator and a puzzle game, but it takes you through PKD's life, but it's not licensed, so they can't use any of PKD's specific stuff. So instead uh, of going so through, you, instead of getting hit by a pink laser beam, he's he's shot by a purple an, laser a gold, beam, and it's called Ballast? It's a golden laser beam, actually. But, <laughs> ballast. Uh, yeah. But he does have, it's a, about a writer, and his publisher is named Don, you know, so there, Don he, works, he works in a book, in, a, in an album store, and, you know, he does drugs, and he sees weird shit, and hangs out with people that are very similar to people he hung out with, uh, has the same relationships. It's, if Boy, you're a PKD he's... fan, this is definitely a game worth, worth playing. It sounds really boring, though. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. He's not arguing with you. Yeah. Walk outside. You have to be at the record store by 9 p.m. No, it has nothing to do. It's nothing like that. Nothing like what Anthony says. <laughs> Dude, I... Don't listen to Anthony because he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just fucking with you. All right. Anthony, do you have a dick-like suggestion? I don't. You don't? No. All right, I got one. But, but oh, if but. I had to think of one on the fly... A dick-like suggestion, and this isn't going to surprise Ooh, the fly me. would be a good one. The fly would be a good one. <laughs> would it? <laughs> we keep talking about Cronenberg. We, we have got to stop talking about Cronenberg for two minutes. Um, if I had to pick one out of a hat, um, Ex Machina, the film by Alex Garland, is oh, a yeah. great kind of low-key yeah. sci-fi film. I don't think Dick would have liked it because it paints the android as more human than the actual humans. Oh, I don't think it does at all. You don't think so? No. Mm. We can talk about that on our... Ex Machina cast. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, it's another one of those where the... No, that's dick-related, though, I think, to think. Yeah, it definitely is. But it's one of those where you have to care about robots to actually have the movie be a success, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think we all know that at this point that Dick does not care about robots. Yeah. Right. Um, and he might have found the ending kind of terrifying, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He would have agreed with the ending. The way he would have been like, oh, my God, that's yeah. a terrible... When, terrible great ending when you frame it in that way I, I agree with you uh, but also dual recommendation if you did like Ex Machina I just want to point out that Alex Garland did a fucking killer uh, Dread movie yeah. a Judge Dread movie oh he did that too and okay. that is one of the best most underrated films I've seen in like the last 20 years it's, yeah. yeah that is an amazing movie and it's a shame that it, it's not going to get a sequel but and I, I know yeah, that it really should the performances were fantastic. It, visually, it's beautiful. The oh, script yeah. is great. Um, so yeah, that's my dual recommendation: um, Dread in Ex Machina. My dick-like suggestion is a 2018 novel um, by an author uh, named Sam J. Miller, and I discovered his work because he's a frequent guest on one of my favorite podcasts, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, and he wrote a book called Blackfish City. Hmm. Um, which is a science fiction novel set on a, like, kind of noir city platform floating in the Arctic in a post-climate change, like, it, it's a it's a cli-fi, cyberpunk noir, like, kind of crossover crime thing. Okay. It's really good. Uh, Blackfish City, um, it's definitely one of my favorite reads of the year. Sam is, uh, communicated with him on Twitter. He is a dickhead, so we will eventually have him as a guest on the podcast. He's down, uh-huh. to, down to do it. Yeah, so check it out. Blackfish City by Sam James. I've seen the cover for that book. It, it actually, the cover looks really cool. Yeah, it, it, it is really cool. Um, I wouldn't tell you to judge the book by its cover, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it is. Really Except cool. in this case. David Agronoff says, this book is pretty cool. No, I like it a lot. It's going to be one of my uh, top ten reads of the year. I'm pretty sure, pretty positive of that. Uh, and it has like a lot of non-binary characters, and like it has, it's very progressive, and it's it, t- it tackles capitalism. It's it's really good. Great. So, um, next, David, what was happening in 1960? <laughs> Ooh, well, we've already talked about 1960 with Doctor Honky. Um, in the last episode, um, but Doctor White Knight. Yeah. So 1960 was, uh, if you did not listen to that episode, was a very important year because it was the year when John F. Kennedy was elected. 
just to give you how long ago we're talking. So, and that was a very important election because it was the first election that was fully televised. So, and uh, we all, those of us who study history know that Richard Nixon basically lost the election because he started sweating a lot during the first televised debate. Flop sweat. Yeah. And uh, so that just gives you an idea of just how far back we're talking. Then again, the majority of Vulcan's Vulcan's Hammer was written in 1953. So you really, I kind of want to wrap your head around... So maybe we should be looking at what was going on in 1953 rather than 1960. Which I don't think we've ever done. We have done 1953. Yeah, we've done it. Yeah, with Solar Lottery. Oh, right. And all that. So, um, yeah, we've done 1953. I I thought that was 54, though. I also also don't have any notes on 1953. Oh, okay. (laughs) Sorry, David. I didn't mean to out you on, on air. Yeah. But anyways. But we should think about 1953. But I, d- I definitely want, when you're considering like what this book is, now a great majority, he probably half of it was written in 1953 and another half in 1960. So the, the importance of the time does matter as far as both eras. Is this? Right. I know we may have brought this up on Dr. Futurity, but is this considered Dick's worst book or was that Dr. Futurity? I think there is debate between these two, <laughs> between Dr. Futurity and Vulcan's Hammer. I think most people think of Vulcan's Hammer to be his worst. Um, and I'm sorry, oh, but... They're wrong, because this shit ain't no cosmic puppets. Yeah, I definitely... <laughs> so far, I would take Dr. Futurity and Vulcan's Hammer over cosmic puppets any day. But, myself. Yeah. Do it. Do the bees. Not, <laughs> you can't demand bees. <laughs> But I, tried, I bet, but I, I bet, tried to do the bees the other day, but it just doesn't work. It has to be Anthony. Yeah. <laughs> but I bet the bees sound a lot like the supercomputer in Vulcan's Hammer. <laughs> the supercomputer definitely does not spit bees. But no, but it probably sounds like those fucking bees. It does probably sound like this. No, David, it's like this. I'm a bee computer. The way he describes the voice is very interesting in the book, though. He uh, says it sounds like tubes and wires, which makes no sense. <laughs> which, which, whichever one is reading it going, huh? Oh, what the fuck did tubes sound like? Yeah, right. the audiobook reader is like... <laughs> sounds like cathode tubes and wires. So and... I wonder if the audiobook reader just like pulls out a tube and speaks through it or like, I don't know. But yeah, so this is definitely considered by many to be the worst uh, PKD novel, and I don't think so. I don't personally believe that it's the worst. So um, far, I don't think it's the worst. Yeah, no. And though a lot of people do like it. Um, yeah, I could take a blow on the head and then go, this is, Cosmic Puppets is his best. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know what? If there's somebody out there that listens to this podcast and your favorite book is the Cosmic Puppet, Cosmic Puppets, fight us. Right in. Yeah. yeah. I want to know what it is about the Cosmic Puppets that you truly love. Yeah. I have a feeling, though, if you're a huge fan of the Cosmic Puppets, you're seething on the other end of this podcast yeah. right now anyways already. <laughs> so just write us in. Yeah, write in, because, like... But yeah. I want to believe it's a really smarmy intellectual who's who has well, that as their favorite novel. Let's not go novel. casting aspersions now. Well, no, <laughs> I, think that, I, I really think that person's a piece of shit. What <laughs> you really don't understand about the nudity of the young female is that it is clearly a metaphor. <laughs> well, see, here's the thing. If you keep in mind, I kind of like yes. Cosmic Puppets at first, and you guys actually talked me into hating it more as, as we talked. Well, yeah, about. because somehow you skimmed over that part. 
Yeah. You, it's true, David. You avoided all the weird, <laughs> I'm not going to say pedophilia, but yeah. uncomfortable pedophilia. <laughs> yeah, I, I think my, my brain... Your brain wouldn't accept it. <laughs> it just wouldn't it's like it. reading that, I was like looking around. I hope nobody sees me reading this, even though they don't know that it's a young child covering themselves in oil. Yeah. <sighs> all right. Anyway, anyway, back to the... Vulcan's hammer. Right. Yeah, so uh, Vulcan's Hammer um, was originally a um, short story, about half the length. It was originally a short story of two of 22,800 words. Um, 22,800. But yeah, so, and it was written on April... You got your... So it was you got a, your numbers okay over there? My numbers okay. So it was a novelette? It was a novelette. was written in one day. Shouldn't be surprising. Well. April 16th, 1953, according to our notes. It was well, ap- That's interesting, though, David, because it's pretty... There's a lot of stuff going on, but the narrative itself is actually pretty, like, this happens, this happens, this happens. It's not nearly as convoluted as, say, something like the world Jones made. Yeah. Well, right, but... 22,000 words in one, in one day? That's... I fucking kill myself. Yeah. Right. Well, this is according to his what he told. He said he wrote it on this day, so he could be exaggerating. Meth yeah, does true. wonders, ladies and gentlemen. So, but keep in mind for that for when you're talking about the plot and everything, he the, twice the length of the original is in the 1960 version. So, mm-hmm. in 1960, he did almost half the work. So, if, if the plot seems to work better, it's probably because most of it was written in 1960, right? And um, so the original short story was written after a story called Survey Team, which I've never read, and before one called... Is it about the team that then goes and overlooks the work of the adjustment team? Yeah. No, 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 no. Wait, what was Survey Team? Yeah, I haven't read Survey Team. And it was before a story called Prominent Author. But but Survey survey Team is an important story. I yeah. can't remember what it has to do with, well, but I read about it the other day. The all the short stories written in 1953 are really important because that's like his the root the, of half of his novels. Well, 1953 was his greatest output for short stories. Was that right. year? So, it okay. Vulcan's Hammer was not published until um, 1956, so three years. The um, SLM and had massive it. edits. Uh, yeah, so they had it for three years, and it was in Future Science Fiction number 29, <laughs> and it was the cover story. So, um, Future Science Fiction number 29. I was wondering when you were going to read that appropriately. <laughs> um, yeah, and so I would say that, that that he wrote it on that date was probably incorrect, because some of my other notes say that that's the day that it arrived to his agency. <laughs> so. Ah. So that is probably not true. Do you have the notes uh, up, Anthony? I do. All right. So we know a lot about the process uh, of when he turned this into a novel because he wrote a letter to his agent, Scott Meredith, in 1960. And this is when PKD was considering the ex- the expansion because he had just finished doing Dr. Futurity. Uh, Anthony, would you like to read this very long letter <laughs> from PKD to Scott Meredith? Sure. Vulcan's hammer is a botched job in the printed version. I botched it myself. I consider it one of the worst of my efforts. However, parts are good, even superb. If I am to, inc- am I <clears throat> if I am to expand it, 
I must do more than literally put in two words where one now stands throughout. I would build up the best parts and eliminate or lessen the weaker parts. I believe that the true body of good ideas lies in the first portion of the story, in about the first third. The ending is terrible. I really like that he just says, the ending is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I also like um, that he basically says, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to punch up all the good parts and cut out all the bad parts. And yet, thanks, <laughs> thanks, dude. And, yet and, and, and we'll find out whether or not I thought that was just a real successful uh, approach to this book. So I want—I just want to point this out before we continue, that this is my favorite book that we've read so far. Whoa! Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's going to be it's going to be interesting. Well, I'll meet you in the octagon, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the novel was written. On... I mean, it's very close with a. Uh, 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 eye in the sky. Eye in the sky. And and, uh, and the one with the guy in the town. Whatever that one was called. Cosmic, Cosmic Puppets? No, the other guy in the town. Oh, Time Out of Joint. Time Out of Joint. The guy in the town. Also known as Man Does Groceries. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, the novel was written April 1960, after... The Man Whose Teeth Were Exactly Alike, and before... What a stupid title. I know, right? <clears throat> and before uh, the even better titled Humpty Dumpty in Oakland. I can't wait to get to that one. Right. Um, so, yeah. So in the in the letter, there he does go on more about about the, the rewrite of the novel. Because the first part was just about the short story. Mm-hmm. So The letter from Don Wilhelm about a rewrite of Vulcan's Hammer to expand it to 40,000 words has reached me. In some ways, the situation looks good, but it's a complex situation, and I want to discuss it with you point by point, if you will bear with me. One, risk. Since this expanded version would be dead on the magazine market, we would have to sell it to Don or have it not sell at all, I presume. This gives Don all the cards in a spec rewrite. I admire and like Don... And he and I have have had a rather long and happy business relationship, but his statements about my rewrite of Time Pawn make me uneasy. (laughs) Well, they might. Now, I say this only because his odd way of reacting, both in terms of what he said and when he said it, makes me fear on this Vulcan's hammer job. From my standpoint, Don is an enigma. I honestly can't tell what will please him, obviously. It would take me several months of intensive work to get a rewrite of this story to him, and I can't absorb it all, and I can't absorb all the risk. Therefore, to go ahead, I must discuss in detail as I go along what I am doing. I see no other way out, if Ace can't put up any money in advance. Two, defects in the story. Vulcan's hammer is a botched job, which we already went through. However, you guys, um, we did not include the part where he says, this may bring about another time pond situation, right? However, it would not be my intention to put in ideas not already there, as I did in Time Pond. I would build up the best parts, and we already read that, because somebody chopped this up in there. <laughs> well, no, the, the, the original notes were for the just talking about the short story. Shouldn't I be... Anyway, I'll continue. Shouldn't I be a little wary of getting too much in Vulcan's hammer in this Don Wilhelm SF notion of Phil Dick's true vocation? It might throw me off my real work. Which is, of course, the straight novel contract. All right, so we got to talk about this. For so a he second. had a contract. He, I, 
That's to, with, maybe with like. but he have a straight novel contract with himself where he was like, I'm going to write this piddling right. science fiction, but what I really want to do is write this really boring story about a California man trying to find himself in Oakland <laughs> while he works at a record shop and he meets a rather mysterious, dark-haired, and I say this with air quotes, exotic, brown-skinned girl. I feel like that would be Dick's right. literary novel. Yeah, well... And that, it's interesting that he says this will, that doing Vulcan's hammer would throw him off his real work. So he doesn't... Yeah, the piddling sci-fi. Yeah, he doesn't see it as his real work. And, uh, well, guess what, buddy? In 2018, <laughs> we're sitting here doing podcasts. <laughs> it's about all your sci-fi work. Right. Well, to be fair, we're doing it for all of Dick's work. Sure. But do you, do you guys think that if Dick had lived until 2018, he would... Have a, he would have have at some point accepted that he's a science fiction writer and not just a straight fiction writer, or had he already come he to that? Come he had to already that. accepted that by the time he passed away. Yeah, he had already come to that. Yeah. You see these speeches from France when he did the the convention. You sure it just wasn't that seething hatred of being considered a sci fi writer that caused him to have a fucking stroke breakdown? Well, I think there was that too, <laughs> but I think he also came to it. I mean. Obviously, he spent the '60s writing science fiction, so right. there, there came a point. So, um, but yeah, so back to the letter. C. If I'm to do any SF, any bread and butter work. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Is that bread and butter work? Maybe back back then, but now it's yeah. you're still broke as fuck. Yeah. <clears throat> Bread and butter works. Since Vulcan's hammer can only be marketed to Ace, wouldn't it be more practical for me to go and do a wholly new SF novel based on new ideas, which, if Ace doesn't buy, would be marketable to other houses? I want to do a psychological SF book in the tradition of my time out of joint. In other words, it seems to me that I must have some stronger assurance that when I get the Vulcan's hammer work done, I will get a sale from Ace on it. I want to do it. That is the job. I'd enjoy it. But it would be real work for me. That time pawn rework almost killed me. It was the hardest job I've done to date. I know Vulcan's hammer would turn out really, really swell. Swell. <laughs> swell. Boy, he is he is really salty about that time pawn rewrite. Yeah, he is. I'll hold off further work on Vulcan's hammer, hoping that you can go to Don with portions of this letter and get from him a more complete acceptance of what I propose to do than obtains it at present. I would not mind dealing with him direct if you want me to, but only if you want want it, okay? And thanks for your willingness to read this long, rambling letter that some dipshit 32-year-old <laughs> in 2018 will then read on a podcast. Um, it, it seems like he's real salty about Time Pond slash Doctor Futurity, and he's just like, man, man it's like when you when you like somebody, but you, you can you go tell them because yeah, you right. don't want to be rejected or embarrassed? I feel like Dick doesn't want to be rejected for... <clears throat> Vulcan's hammer this time. Well, what happened on the Time Pond Doctor Futurity was that... I gotta point out that Time Pond is a really dumb title. Yeah. Yeah, so what happened on Doctor uh, White Knight, Doctor <laughs> Future Guy, was that... Doctor, uh, god damn this future shit is confusing. <laughs> so what happened on Doctor Futurity was that um, he had to make a lot of political changes to the story, like taking out the the death of Christianity yeah. and the interracial marriage 
And yeah, the, not, it's all the the same problems he had with Eye in the Sky. Yeah, which we talked about in the last episode, and I think those things... And that means he was burned twice. Right, and so I think he just was like, man, I, I gotta write this this supercomputer dystopian <laughs> stuff. You, you ain't gotta you, you gotta let me gotta let me do my supercomputer dystopia the way I want to do it. <laughs> I know, and, I know you want supercomputers, but look, I got this other book that's totally straight laced literature called Humpty Dumpty in Oakland. <laughs> really trying to get it off the ground. Right, but I gotta do bread and butter. So. Uh, <laughs> I love the idea of Dick saying, "If you want me to do a book about a supercomputer, you're gonna let me do it the way I want." My supercomputer. <laughs> it's my supercomputer story. Yeah. Well, and I'm <laughs> kind of glad that he did, and yeah. apparently Larry liked it. So um, I didn't just like it; I love this book. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's things I liked about it a lot, but we'll get there. Um, but what's cool is it became an ace double, and it was um, put together with. It was put together with John Bruner's Skynappers, and we've talked about John Bruner before. He was a really great uh, science fiction novelist, but I think he was writing bread and butter sci-fi for yeah. Ace. Well, Doubles I mean, too. I think I think they all were at this yeah. at this time because you're getting paid by the word, and you're also like you're just this is at a They're time this is thirty five cents a copy. This is at a time. This is at a time where. If you worked hard and you had that kind of blue collar work ethic, you could eke. I'm not going to say you could live comfortably, but you right. could eke by a, a little bit of, a, of, of some semblance of a living by pumping these out. Yeah. Whereas now, the Dickensian model I would be, of writing. I would be that guy I saw pissing into a cup from Lestat's on my way back over here from the store. Right. But um, so we've come to a special part of the show. What's happening? My favorite part of the show. Why, Anthony, it's the story breakdown. So, Larry. Yeah. Break it down. Uh, all right. <laughs> you like this one. This yeah, it doesn't mean it's easy to break down. All right, let me get let me get into the the, the proper mind space. <sighs> do you need to listen to do you need this is, do you need to hear the Rick James Super Freak baseline? For my my book report today, I will be talking about Vulcan's Hammer by Philip K. Dick. All right. So we start with a guy in a car being surrounded by a mob, and he's like, uh, calls on his car phone, doot, 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 doot. Uh, I'm in trouble. There's a mob, and they're looking pretty angry, and they're like, don't worry about it, dude. People are on the way. The cops are on the way. You're going to be fine. And he's like, doot, 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 doot. Uh, boss, I don't think I'm going to be fine. Turns out he wasn't fine. They killed him. And uh, his boss is like, hey, other boss guy, that sucked about that guy dying, right? Cops were almost there, but they didn't make it. And the other guy's like, yeah, yeah, you seem pretty important to this story. Thank God we never talk to you again. We just mention you throughout the whole thing as a dick. So the, the new guy is named Barris, and he is a director of the Unity system, 
which is run by Vulcan 3, a massive computer that uh, dictates all the policies of the world. Very, very simple there. And uh, Bruner is the director of America, North America. And the guy he was talking to, Taubman, is the director of South America and happens to run the concentration camp in Atlanta where they they reprogram people to think properly. We never go to Atlanta. Just get that off. It's fucking pisses me off that we never go to Atlanta and see this place. They talk about, yeah, what are we going to do with Atlanta? Let's tear it down. Okay. Fucking what? Anyway, so Bruner's like, uh, Bruner's like, all right, uh, you know, Barris. Yeah, Barris. Yeah, that's his name. Bruner's the writer. Uh, Barris is like, I got to go talk to this guy's wife and tell him that she died. And normally I don't do this, but I'm going to do it this once for some reason. So he goes to her house and she's like, oh, my husband's dead and all, now I'm not going to have a great house and all that stuff. And he's like, yeah, that's that's true. And she's like, yeah, and it's, well, it's kind of your fault because you're a dick. And he's like, what? I didn't do anything. You're crazy. Your fault. Your fault. And he goes, all right, I'm out of here. So he leaves and... He goes back to his office, and then he, and we go to a different scene with a, a teacher, and she's like, this is that, and that is that, and these are the other things, and you kids aren't learning right, and oh, here comes the president of the world, and then the president of the world comes in, and he's like, hey, everybody, I'm the president of the world, something Dill. My last name is Dill. Jason Dill. Jason, Jason Dill. Dill. And all the kids are like, ooh, president of the world. And then this one kid's like, hey, president of the world, aren't you a dick? <laughs> and uh, then turns out the, 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 little, the, the little kid is this girl who's the son of the guy who runs this, uh, this faction of, uh, what are they called? Healers. The healers who are like uh, against the government. They're the, the, <clears throat> the counter government people. And they all walk around in brown robes. And they walk around like, like Padres. Padres. Yeah, they just the look like the Padre logo. Yeah. And so the the president of the world's like, little girl, you're coming with me. And she's like, whatever. And so then the teacher's like, oh, that that was embarrassing. And then um, and then I'm just going to go ahead with the teacher story so I can end her. Uh, so <laughs> she's like, oh, I'm going to go get a meal. So she goes to the break room and in the cafeteria, this woman's like, Hey, go get that uh, book, the, that banned book, so I can read it. She's like, man, i got to go get the banned book. She goes to her locker, gets the banned book, and then she's like, oh, I should get that little girl's stuff out of her room so because I have to and rules, and I'm all paranoid about it. And then so she goes there, and a robot kills her. <laughs> and so that's the end of her. And then so the uh, meanwhile, the director of the world, or the president of the world, whatever he is, prime director... Uh, main director. He's he's like the head director of like a dozen other directors or something. Yeah, he's he's the president of the world. Mm-hmm. So he he's like, uh, little girl, tell me all the things about your dad. And little girl's like, I don't know shit about my dad. He's like, all right, but you're staying here until you tell me about your dad. And she's like, oh, that sucks. <laughs> and and then he goes and he talks to his friend, who is his only friend, is uh, Vulcan two which is the old computer that used to run the world but can't anymore because it's all old and decrepit and uh, doesn't function right. 
and uh, it never really had the ability to do it in the first place. But he's like, Vulcan 2, my old pal, tell me what I should do next. And then Vulcan 2's like, I need more time, bro. And so he leaves, and he, and then, oh shit. And then we go back to Bruner, who's hanging out, and, uh, Barris. Barris, damn it. Barris is hanging out, and, and he's like, I gotta figure out what's going on because I'm all paranoid about everything. Everybody's paranoid about everything in this uh, in unity. a dick novel. Yeah, and then so he's like, um, "Let's see, this is that, that is that, this is the other thing. The president of the world is hiding shit. I gotta go confront him." And so he goes. Oh, and he's on his way to go confront the president of the world. He runs into the wife again, who was arrested for writing a letter that she didn't really write. And she's like, yeah, they arrested me for writing a letter that I really didn't write. And then they let me go after they picked parts of my brain out, which they she never mentions again. It's like, what? what? Hey. <laughs> oh, no, they put it all back. I hope. God, maybe. And I'm, huh. Okay. So he's like, oh, yeah, I'll take you to a cheap hotel and everything will be cool. And so they go to a cheap hotel and it turns out that uh, Father Fields is there. And Father Fields is that guy who's the father of the daughter he's the guy that runs the uh the what healers healers he runs the healers and uh he's like hey bro come in join us we're cooler and then he's and then the and then barris is like i can't i can't join you i'm gonna go and before he can go one of them robots that killed the uh killed the school teacher comes in and tries to kill uh farmer ted no, uh, Father... Father Fields. Father Fields. And fails because Father Fields shoots it with a... Oh, shit. What's the weapon called? Pencil beam. Pencil beam. <laughs> shoots it with a pencil beam. Uh, then Barris leaves and goes and he, he confronts the president. And the president of the world's like... Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. And then Barris is like, yes, you do. And then the president of the world's like, um, yes, yes, I do. I know, I know what you're talking about. So then they talk about it and he's like, shows him some tapes and he's like, yeah, see, it's all fucked up. And I haven't been able to mention the healers because Vulcan three will go all fucking gaga and fucking crazy and shit. And, uh, he's like, Oh, I wish Vulcan two was around because Vulcan two got taken apart and all, all blown up and shit. And then Barris is like, oh, I don't know if I trust this guy. Yeah, I trust him. Uh, I'm going to take Vulcan 2 and I'm going to put it back together. So he goes back home and he, into New York and he's like, Let, let's put this thing together. He puts the thing together and he hangs out with it for like four days. And the thing's like, uh, hey, Vulcan 3 is doing all this shit that sucks. And then he's like, oh, we got to stop Vulcan 3. So then he goes back to the president. But in the meantime, Vulcan 3 is like, yeah, fuck you guys. I'm getting all these guys together, and we're going to impeach your ass to uh, to Dill. That and, is and, pretty much what it does. And then, so they all meet, and this uh, other director, Reynolds, is like, ha, 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 I'm super smart and pretty, and watch me go. I'm tall and shit. And uh, then they're like, oh, the, and then Vulcan 3 is like, this shit isn't working out well enough, and send some robots in, and they're like, the hammers. They're, at this point, they're then starting to call them the hammers. And uh, so three of them show up, and then four of them show up, and, and they're like, "Oh, wait, what? What? 
Barris and Dill were talking about is kind of true, but also we've spent our whole life listening to Vulcan 3. We can't go back on it now, except for a couple of guys are like, let's go back on it now. And so they they end up taking over this tower, and in the meantime, the... What are they called? Healers. The healers have basically taken over the world, and uh, they're they're like blowing stuff up and being idiots, as a mob will be, just, you know, look at us go, we threw rocks at stuff, yay! That kind of stuff. And so then they come up with the... the uh, the directors that are left that are not on either side, which is kind of cool. They're like, um, all right, dude, Barris, you have to choose a side. Which side are we on? And he's like, I choose no side. Fuck those fuckers. They're all bad. And basically there's five, six people against the entire world. And he's like, we got to convince some people to be on our side or something. So he says, all right, here's my plan. I'm going to go talk to the girl, get her to take me to her dad. And then I'll convince him to do some stuff. So he does that. And then so they start doing the stuff. And the stuff is they're going to break in to where Vulcan 3 is, where no one knew where it was before because it was all super hush-hush. And so they break into this tunnel, and then they're, like, fighting, and it's pretty cool. And then he, like, I got to duck off to the side, and he ducks off to the side with his little thermal thermonuclear bomb or whatever he has in his hand. And uh, he's like, I'm a director. I can go where I want. And then he shoots a guard in the head, and the head pops apart. And he's like, that guard was a traitor, and I'm going to go in here now. And the other guards are like, yes, you are. (laughs) And uh, so he goes in there, and he's talking to this dude, and the dude's like, watch me feed the stuff into Vulcan 3, which happens to be right here. And then he's like, wow, that's really interesting, you feeding the stuff into Vulcan 3, which happens to be right here. And then he throws the bomb at Vulcan 3, and Vulcan 3 is like, no, don't do it. That would suck for me. And then it blows up, and then the he made this deal with, with Father Fields, and Father Fields like, yes, I'll honor the deal. And by the way, that girl's my daughter that you've been like sort of like rubbing up against and stuff, and uh, she likes you. So here she is. You should talk to her. And he's like, yeah, cool. And um, let's get to business. But first, let's let's hang out. And that's the book. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That was a tough one. Well done. Do you so, need a beer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's Vulcan's Hammer in a nutshell. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of interesting things to talk about um, yeah. with this novel. I think... I understand why certain people don't like it. Yeah, so do I. Um, and there's certainly flaws to it. But, oh, yeah, definitely. But I think what's really cool about Vulcan's Hammer are the ideas are really kind of batshit crazy, but awesome. Um, I don't think the execution is the best, but hmm. you know we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. So let's talk about some of the themes that are in there. It's funny, you, my first note that I took on things I wanted to talk about in the book were about um, the Atlanta Cyclabs. Right. That sound really interesting. Yeah. And we never go there. I, I, and, somehow it had to come back into the finale in some way. That, that really bugged me. Yeah, and that was definitely something that I like. I really thought sounded interesting when he me- first mentioned it. Yeah. Like, it's a really interesting concept this- this reprogramming center that's all based on, you know, uh, psychiatry. 
Yeah, and I almost think you could have a whole novel in the Atlanta Psych Labs. Right. And I'd be really <laughs> interested to see PKD write a novel about the Atlanta Psych Labs. I certainly think we could have ejected a, some of the scenes where it's just them yapping bureaucratic nonsense back and forth. I don't think so. I, I liked those labs. scenes. Yeah, I did too. Mm. I, I don't think it. Ne- I don't think anything needs to be cut per se, but definitely some stuff should be added about Atlanta. Yeah. Um, so right after that, we get our introduction to Vulcan Three, and you know, there's there are some interesting things about. So Vulcan Three as a supercomputer. In the beginning, we just hear about Vulcan Three. We don't hear about Vulcan One or Two, but we get the idea that the no, way- we we hear about. All three of them. We well, do eventually. The school teacher talks about yeah, it. Yeah, but in the beginning. Yeah. And you get the idea that Vulcan 3, it starts with that you have a form you fill out. And so the first form, it's like, A, are the healers of real significance? B, why don't you respond to their existence? And so then he puts the form in a slot and that whole thing. And, and I thought that was interesting, like how Vulcan 3 worked. And it was, you know, kind of like a neat little... Um, it collects questions and information and processes it all. And Right. And I kind of liked the way the narrative set it up where you didn't really think of Vulcan 3 as having a personality in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Or it's just like forms going in. And I don't know if it was intentional on Dick's part well, that he started it out this way, but eventually Vulcan 3 does kind of develop a personality. And you remember the computers of that time were took up rooms... And used the uh, punch card system and all that stuff. So he yeah. sort of integrated all those things into it. The size of it and the... Yeah. That it was really not... Computers at that time didn't do anything like they do now. So the... No. You know, an advanced... Even an advanced computer to them was weaker than the computers we have now. Or the computers that we have on in our hands right now. Right. And, and so it's interesting because Vulcan 3 is built into the ground and... That being said, that if you look at like big mega information giants, or like you just look at Netflix, that has so many customers all over the place. They have huge data centers, so there are still giant. But that's not that's not computing. It's a, an entirely different thing. It's yeah, storage. big data is a sto- Yeah, it's a it's a storage. Is it a storage method, Larry? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I had to watch a video on what big data was after listening to Evan's three part series on Vulcan's <laughs> Hammer. Right, and and so I I do think, you know, one of although the, the newest computer they just made that is supposed to be the strongest computer ever uh, does take up an entire room. Is it a salty bitch too, like Vulcan Three? I hope so. <laughs> well, and you know, I, I think I just listened to a um, podcast where they were talking about quantum. It was the Richard Clark, the guy who was the terrorism czar for Clinton. And he was talking about quantum computers and how people don't ask how a 747 works. They just they understand that it works. Right. And a hundred years from now, like quantum computers are going to be things that we just they just we know how they work, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think this idea that there's all this data out there in the world it does make Vulcan's Hammer one of the more prophet prophetic of Dick's works in the sense that. You know, the accumulation of data and how, like, things are collected about us. You know, just how, like, when you have Vulcan's Hammer comes into into 
uh, focus when you think about, for example, like I mentioned a telescope one time on Facebook about how like, oh, I want to look at Mars tonight because it's really close. And then I got a targeted ad for a new telescope <laughs> and like, and, and that shit happens all the time now. Right. And that's a yeah. re- really good sign that, you know, you know, your phones are listening to you, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. All the Which time. is strange when you have a conversation and then later you're scrolling through Instagram and somehow there's a targeted sponsored ad that was literally for the thing for you, something were talking you were about. talking about. I don't <laughs> like it. I don't like it. So, so it doesn't your, really bother me. Your phone though. sends targeted ads for trashy horror movie t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, yes, it's true. <laughs> trashy <laughs> horror movie t-shirts and strip club locations. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> those are not from the conversations we're having. Oh, sorry, David. I didn't mean to um, offend <laughs> the, the 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 literati in here. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think that. That whole big data thing and, and how Vulcan 3 is kind of like always looking over everything is definitely makes, of all the novels that we've read so far, makes Vulcan Hammer the one that kind of says the most about today, which is really interesting. Well, in, in and also what I, what I really liked about it is that it moves past just the the social commentary that we've seen in other dick books so far and moves on to economic and political territory, which he hasn't really touched. Yeah. And, and he's definitely, well, you guys don't feel like Dick is always touching on politics. I feel like political territory is something he consistently does. Not specifically. No, no, he hasn't done that more in the fifties. Cause if you look at solar lottery, come on, solar lottery was very political. Um, I mean, specifically, Oh, you mean about very specific yeah. individual? Oh, Jabed is a very political book. I mean, look, look yeah. at Jabed. Let me let me read you the the Vulcan three thing that which is which is basically what what Dick would say himself. I think uh, this paragraph on page fifty nine of the book that's falling apart in my hand. The Ace Double. You have the Ace Double original. Yeah. The dissatisfaction of the masses is not based on economic deprivation, but on a sense of ineffectuality. Not an increased standard of living, but more social power is their fundamental goal. Because of their emotional orientation, they arise and act when a powerful leader figure can coordinate them into a functioning unit rather than a chaotic mass of unformed elements. So what he's saying he's saying there is that poor people being poor isn't really what matters. It's that they don't care about being poor; they care about not having a say and not having the power to change things. I just thought that was a very specific thing that he he hasn't done that in the past. He has he has done some satire and he's done some other things like that, but mostly in the social stratum not in the economic functioning of a government well what's interesting though i I think he did in solar lottery especially because in solar lottery is the one where he got i'll I'll give you that one yeah he well you arguing him with yeah um well solar lottery is the one where he was accused of being left that he tried so left-wing that he tried to go the other way with world jones made and you know and, and definitely 
you know, we, we kind of joked about how World Jones made, you know, was about, like, how being a Nazi is bad. <laughs> you know, and, I just need to point out to you guys that being a Nazi, Nazi is a bad idea. Right. But then again, we're living in a time where, you know, our president, you know, said he was a nationalist in a press conference, you know. <sighs> so. Yeah, so, I mean, again, these are issues that come up again, so... Yeah, and and the other thing I really liked about this book is that uh, I love paranoid bureaucracy uh, thriller-type stories. Mm -hmm. You know, this reminded me a lot of The Prisoner, uh, the TV show The Prisoner, and uh, and even, uh, I don't know how you feel, you read the book, Anthony, but it reminded me of the movie High Rise. I don't know how that compares to the book. But it reminded me of that power structure of, you know, the hierarchy and who, who's really in charge and being paranoid about yeah. losing your place and yeah, all those Ballard things. Yeah, Ballard does deal with those issues a lot. I, I could see that connection. I think Ballard does it in a much weirder way. Right. And I think Ballard sets a much stranger tone in some in some in that in that type of way. Yeah, work. he probably does it much uh, better. But well, oh, High Rise is a killer. But, novel. Uh, to me, this has that same that that par- he really nails that paranoid feeling. I, I mean, wish it's sick. So yeah, I just paranoid wish, is his wheelhouse. I wish that there was enough balance between both the bureaucrats and kind of the people who are stuck living in the surveillance state, because right. the majority of the characters are either bureaucrats or they're part of the healers movement. Yeah, and when we're even, even when we're with his, uh, Pitt's wife, who is the the wife of the guy who's killed in the beginning. She's still living what I would consider to be a more white collar lifestyle, and yes, so I, I I think that for me this book needed more of a character who is kind of subjected to the surveillance state. Yeah, if that instead makes, of the, if you guys yeah, see what I'm saying, instead of the leadership of the. Well, I think you could have both. I mean, and he was playing a role. Uh, Father Fields, whatever. Father Fields is playing a role. It's it's said in there he's playing the role of, of basically a working class hero which is which is cool because i think you don't really see that that often where the kind of enigmatic leader of a movement is actually just a blue collar worker with other motivations you typically with those types of characters you see more of the kind of philosophical hippy dippy cult leader (laughs) You, you see what i'm saying Right. So, yeah. so for his, I'm not going to show my hand on this book yet, but I, I do think that that's something I enjoyed, and I wish this book had probably been about 100, 150 pages longer and had right. the chance to flesh that's some a, of that that's out. What I keep, you know, what I keep coming back to is this book could have been a lot longer. For the first time, I normally don't, I don't condone making things longer because it <laughs> yeah, usually no adds nothing to the story. But there are a lot of places he, where this could have been longer and it would have helped. He had to get back to his real work. Yeah, right. He had to get back to Humpty Dumpty in Oakland. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, which is, you know, I think there's, you know, it's funny because I was looking through my notes, Larry, and I think I had the, the whole stability, you know, the society craves stability thing that mm-hmm. Falcon 3, I had that um, highlighted too. As right? did I. Yeah, so I definitely think that you know those political feeling Vulcan. It's funny that Vulcan Three was a lot of a lot of times. I think speaking for PKD in that yeah, sense, and, yeah. and less so the human characters, and more like <laughs> the the supercomputer was you know 
was speaking for the way he saw humanity. Yeah, not necessarily his views, but the things he observed in the world, in the in the world that he lived in. Not. Yeah, and I and I, I think, um, and I wanted to move on to um, to another concept that I, you know, I've read a lot about like the different views that people have on Vulcan's hammer and the different ideas that have come up. But one idea that I have not seen a lot written about, but there's a, there's a line in, in the, um, my edition, which is the three early PKD novels. It's on page two ninety five. but, um, uh, basically one of the characters is, is arguing against unity and against the supercomputer system and the unity control and I think it's it's Dill. Dill says, um, somebody has told you you were better off in the olden days before Unity when we had war every 20 years. <laughs> and I think it's really important to note that that line was probably written in 1953, but even if it was written in 1960, either way, if you look at that era, they just came off two world wars. Mm-hmm. You know, the people that were living at that time in 1953. And I know Larry and I were talking about this, besides our, our millennial co-host may not have had this experience. I know when I was growing up, I just assumed that World War III was an eventuality. It was going to happen. We just... Just a matter of time. Yeah. And one could argue that some of the global conflicts that we're having right now could be considered a world war in, in a sense where we have... NATO and everybody all pitching in on the terrorism thing, but not really in the sense, not in the way that World War II, World War One, and World War II had happened. But I think for somebody living in 1953 writing a dystopia, it would be easy to imagine that world wars were just a thing that was going to happen. Right. And I think that that's an aspect of Vulcan's Hammer that I find really oddly not talked about. Which is that um, the eventuality or the the assurity that we were going to have World War Three and nuclear war has come up time and time again. In, Pause for a cool guy on a motorcycle. Bye, cool guy. Uh, so, <laughs> so you know, this eventuality of war is something that came up, and that's the the argument for why the solar lottery would happen, or and yeah. why Vulcan Three would happen. But it's also why we saw the war and the devastation that happened in World Jones made, and so, um, and time out of joint the the assured war with with the lunatics or whatever. We were sure <laughs> that we were going to have some kind of war, some way or another. And I think the idea that the supercomputer could come along and try to keep peace in a way that humans couldn't is a very interesting concept that PKD was exploring here. Right. And if he had more time in a more fleshed out novel and or film adaptation, you know, which would be fantastic. Subtle this one, David subtle, very subtle. Yeah. But if you had the time to explore these issues, I think Vulcan's hammer for whatever weaknesses it has for being a pulp work of his from the fifties, I think the ideas like make this a very valid and important entry in PKD's, yeah, I, I was. I'm very surprised to hear that it's so unpopular. But I, I also can see that if the expectation is for weirdness, and this one doesn't have any weirdness in it. This is a straight, you know, sci-fi, sci-fi, paranoid bureaucracy supercomputer story. It's a sci-fi thriller. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, there's the, it, it doesn't have that normal PKD side trip into something bizarre, alternate realities, any of that. Yeah, so there's it makes no sense. uncanny valley kind of weird. Yeah. But when I, 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 I don't care about that. When I was reading it, I didn't care about that. Yeah, this this story that. just hit me in the right place. Well, and I think there are enough weird ideas for. I just think the I for reading it in 2018. I think it's interest. There's enough weirdness out of it just being so crazy out of date, you know, <laughs> that makes it like a whole another universe. That that's one of the things I like about reading out of date sci-fi is because you're not just reading about the future, the future, <laughs> the future, the future. You're reading about the future seen through the eyes of a dude sitting at a typewriter in 1953. Right. So that creates this whole, I think that creates a certain weirdness on its own. Yeah. You know, and I like that. And then, and there's things like, for example, there's like this part where they talk about how the Sahara has become like the, the fucking the ritzy area, yeah, the <laughs> ritzy Riviera and stuff like that is kind of weird. And, but then for me, it was like, well, I was just trying to think of how the mechanics of that nuclear winter worked where mm-hmm. it avoided the savannah or whatever. But um, but then again, you know, those are just cool things that I think are are a little out there and a little weird, partially because it's out of date, you know. Yeah. I thought the uh, the hammers were a really good villain. Not not Vulcan three necessarily, but the hammers themselves the way he described them as sort of being out of sight all the time, but knowing that they're there. Yeah. Sort of capitalizing on that paranoia, but having it be real. It's the whole, just because you're paranoid, don't think they're not after you kind of thing. Right, where the hammers were always kind of a, a lurking present threat. Yeah. You know, once, once, uh, yeah. Once he was aware of them. Yeah, and I do think that where... The one hanging out in the room with the reconstructed Vulcan 2 was awesome. Yeah. It's just hanging out in a corner. Just waiting to be activated, basically. Yeah, yeah. and I liked um, when when Dill when Dill got the letter that was accusing him to like that whole thing kind of fit into the less of the PKD what I think of as a as a trope in a PKD novel, but as a trope that I see in the PKD action movies. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. the paranoia setting him up of, like, you know, where, you know, basically the I am Spencer Olam part <laughs> right. of, of this, you know. And um, if I'm not quiet, then who the hell am I, you know. Yeah. I'm the president, damn you, you know. I could see that right there, and I thought that's something that I, I liked here. So. Um, I'm surprised this one isn't a movie already. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that later. All right. So. Uh, we'll get to that part soon. Um, I have less quotes because you uh, took one of my quotes. I had, um, <laughs> you know, a lot of this dialogue that um, when Dill's having this conversation with um, Vulcan 3 is really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. I, You know, but we, we kind of already talked about that. But, um, you know, that's where he gets into more nitty gritties of, of, about the, the politics. And I do think that that's that's really awesome i do think there was some interesting things going on between in the relationship between vulcan 2 and 3 the fact that 2 and 3 are kind of 
competing with each other and yeah. trying to undermine each other. And I think that if you were to do another kind of adaptation of this, it might be good to like turn the Vulcan two and three conflict into more of a thing. Right. And if you extended the novel, if you it were to be longer, I think that's something that could have helped. Yeah. The story. Yeah. What did you think of that twist that Vulcan two was actually behind both sides? Are you that asking were, me? That were against both. Um, what was I, behind behind? I uh, appreciated it, but much like with a lot of the ideas in this book that are probably more interesting to me than what the book gives us we just kind of they say it and then they move on right um so i actually explored long enough i actually like that these two supercomputers are kind of playing this petty game of cat and mouse with these two with these the bureaucrats and the healers right i just wish that we kind of saw more of that played out and earlier and earlier Yeah. yeah 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 i think on a narrative level that's something that definitely could have been improved so our boy um, Evan Lampy, uh, he his comments um, on on it. I read. Um, I both Anthony. And I both listened to his podcast. Uh, we did. It was really informative. Boy, that Evan Lampy. He's yeah, a smart he's guy. He's a smart guy. He's <laughs> a smart guy, and I, I wish I could read things and kind of extrapolate the ideas and themes from them the way that that he does. But even like four years of a literature and writing <laughs> studies degree didn't do that for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, he has a very different way of, of looking at these books than we do. So uh, we certainly think that people could, you know, get something out of listening to his podcast as well. Um, but uh, from the essay that he wrote on his blog about Vulcan's Hammer, it is three major areas that Vulcan's Hammer is relevant to us today. The surveillance state, big data, and automation. Vulcan's Hammer should be read, although it lacks many of Dick's metaphysical questions. It is a good example of Dick's writing when he is at his most political. In fact, most of his stories and novels before 1962, and many that came after, are best read politically and for insight into his historical vision, Dick's greatest political fear was not the Lovecraftian horror seen in The Faith of Our Fathers. It was stability. This would be framed later in his work as The Empire Never Died. Much of Dick's early fascination with the frontier is rooted in his historical vision, his deep desire for escape from stability. It makes me... It, may, it strikes me that this is a fundamentally American concern. Many of Dick's works from the 50s, including Vulcan's Hammer, are deeply optimistic, seeing hope for humanity in some distant frontier or in some major jolt to the system. Right. And in this case, and I know Evan also pointed out in his podcast that it's middle management, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's doing this. I mean, Dill's here. He's the president of the world, but it's more Barris that kind of drives the action. Yeah. So. Well, that's the Dill is ineffectual. Yeah. Because he, he can't decide on what to do next without the help of a of a superior thing. Yeah. Whereas so, Barris is the you know, the Heinleinian action man that just wants to do something to to make something happen. Right. I'm surprised we got this far into this podcast and just now brought up Heinlein. <laughs> <laughs> nice, uh, nicely done, Larry. Well, yeah, I mean, PKD uh, liked Heinlein stuff, and so 
That helps. I think, I, didn't I, he? I never read any quotes where he said anything about Heinlein, yay or nay, that I know of. I thought I read something about that. Well, it's funny because I also... But I don't remember my sources, so... I also recently I can't had somebody be trusted. tell me that he was a big fan of, of Samuel Delaney, and then I found a quote where he was bashing Dahlgren, <laughs> and he was like, ooh, maybe not. Um, <laughs> but I found this great quote from a review from fantasyliterature.com, a guy named Sandy Ferber, that talks about, um, and it kind of hits on the, he's talking about Vulcan's hammer, and I thought this was great because it hits on like how it's, well, I'll just read it. Uh, Vulcan's hammer is atypical in the Dickian ouvoir as oeuvre in that it is completely devoid of humor. <laughs> also missing are the pet concerns that would crop up in so many of the author's later works, such as recreational drugs, drugs, opera, classical music, cigars, <laughs> the German language, cars, <laughs> divorce, and of course the slippery nature of so-called reality. Uh, and I hadn't noticed until he said this that there isn't any humor in this book. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about that uh, before we started the show. That, that's, what, that's what this one lacks above all else compared to the ones that have come before it. Is sarcasm. Is that, is yeah. that humorous element. Yeah. That is definitely lacking. So. That's what I was talking about with the satire missing and that kind of thing. Yeah. But, uh, it, it, yeah, that is definitely kind of um, an odd thing that's, that's kind of missing from this. and, and I could, I, But it didn't, it didn't bother me. It didn't bother me either. But, um, you know, overall, I, I don't know. I mean, so, well, maybe let, let's, let's get into our overall. Are we ready for that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Larry, you want to start us off? Yeah, I, uh, I'm going to give it a four stars or four. Oh, wait, we don't do wow. stars. Wow. Whoa. Four what? Four. Yeah, come on. Man. I know, right? I, I, I'm going to give it uh, four Venus babies. Okay. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa, whoa, whoa. Right. <laughs> How many? Four supercomputers, maybe? <laughs> I'm going to give it four directors out of <laughs> five uh, because I. I was fully engaged with this book all the way through. I never got bored except for maybe a little bit uh, in between the the grand fight in the in the director's meeting and the grand and the finale when they start the tunnel. When he's talking to the little girl, it got a little boring. Uh, I'm going to give this three pencil beams out of <laughs> five. <laughs> um, but uh, I... It was hard. I almost gave it four. I did really have fun with this novel. I think a lot of the ideas. Um, part of the reason why I enjoyed this so much, and this will be the next section we talk about, is I was basically adapting this as a movie in my head the whole time, and I had a lot of fun picturing it. As Literally, a movie. no one is surprised. <laughs> no, but I don't always do that. I you don't... wait a minute. You don't always do that. Uh, let me look at some of the ones that we. Yeah, Larry, come on. Yeah, I've, I've got to agree that pretty much it becomes a movie in your head every time. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, go on. Right. But I, I can see what you're saying as it was going because I, I felt the same way. It was a lot more with this one than the past ones. I I normally don't see it as a movie until you say, now let's talk about it as a movie. <laughs> but uh, on this one, I, it was a movie. I mean, yeah. it was very clear. Yeah, this 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 fits in. I think it the, had that. It's just that simplicity of the story that makes it just blend perfectly into the visual. Yeah, 
and because of its relevance politically to mm-hmm. current day, too. Anthony, how many? So, I'm going to give this three salty-ass supercomputers out of five. <laughs> it's fine. Huh. It's fine. It's a book I read. Um, Please submit your review to the slot <laughs> so Vulcan 3 can assess your review. There's a book... There's there's a lot of really cool ideas in here, but I was not ever really engaged with it. I was engaged with kind of the social and, like, political themes, but as far as the characters go and the interactions, I was downright bored. Um, I, I think that there's too many cuts to different characters that don't really matter to the storyline, and there's stuff that we could have expanded on. The teacher on. is the only one, really. I mean, Marion Fields really only exists so she can then take... Um, but we never go to her perspective. Right, but she's in it a ton. Oh, wait, which which one is I'm talking that? about the little girl. The little girl, yeah. Right, so she's in it, and then she's not in it until the very end when we conveniently need her to get yeah. Barris to <laughs> Father Fields. So... Yeah, it, she th- is kind of pointless. There's, there's just... I like it's a book full of ideas I, I really enjoy and I would like to have seen kind of maybe a hundred pages more to have things fleshed out but ultimately yeah. I was pretty bored and disengaged for the majority of this book and I laugh every time somebody says he gripped his pencil beam <laughs> um just not not because of a dick joke just because it reminded really? it made me think of those um the the mind erasers that they use in men in black so I just imagined it was them running around with a bunch of metal like pen like cylindrical right. laser wands i i will say that it is more consistent in its narrative structure than like say something like the world jones made yeah but ultimately this book wasn't for me and that doesn't make it a bad book it just didn't resonate with me at all hmm. but the op- uh, what did you think of the opening we always end up talking about the opening ever since that that terrible I liked- one I thought this was a really good one with the guy in the car. I like the opening, and I like certain... That totally disappeared from the novel. Like You're like, all right, got to worry about this guy now. He's well, really he's important. dead. And then he's dead right away. Yeah, that was good. I like that. I like, again, and I already said this, but I, I did like that Father Fields, instead of being a philosophical, enigmatic, kind of beatnik poetry-reading D-bag that a lot of like <laughs> cult movement leaders are, right. whatever you want to call them, was more of a, a blue-collar... But he did have Dude. that. He did sort of have that element when he dropped his accent, his sure. you know, colloquial accent, and used bigger words. But I think that was it. just part of his his. He, he does have a certain amount of facade there. Yeah, um, and and I would have liked to have maybe spent more time with that character. Mm-hmm. But like I said, ultimately this book didn't resonate with me whatsoever. But you, you know, you have to have Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah, I I agree. The Atlanta. The lack in, of Atlanta. In, I want to see more, again, I want to see more of how the other people, aside from the people in the movement and the bureaucrats, like, the, the other everyday people, like, how are they living in this surveillance state? Mm-hmm. I never get a mm-hmm. feel for just how overbearing that is true. the computers that is, are. Yeah, that is missing. You know? And and I think that that's an integral part to world building for this book that yeah. isn't there. Yep. So, yeah, three salty-ass supercomputers out of five. <laughs> Please submit your questions. No, everything you say is right. I, I mean, I'm happy with the story that was told, mm-hmm. but yes, it could have had a lot more 
added to it that would really the story would benefit from those things. Yeah, and that's why I could only give it three pencil beams out of five because, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's I really did like it, but I can't in good conscience give it. I actually and and, and I do. Yeah, it's no Doctor Futurity. <laughs> Well, I actually do like Doctor Futurity better. Yeah, I I didn't. I I will say, you know, I don't know. I think Doctor Futurity had moments that I really enjoyed, but I, man, there's some dumb dumb stuff in that book. <laughs> I don't know why. I think the the whole Western you just had a good time. I just had a good time with Doctor Futurity. It worked for me. So um, on that note, um, so that's our review. So let's talk about. Uh, what would we do to make this a movie? Put Atlanta in it. <laughs> yeah, for starters. Um, does anyone want to go before me? Or No, I think you can no, leave. Yeah, you go ahead. You All seem right. very eager. I am very eager for this one because if uh, Electric Sheep Productions is out there listening, I, I would love to adapt Vulcan's Hammer for a film with you guys my side but um i think that's right david knows who he has to bring with him on his magic carpet ride to film land <laughs> right right um i think vulcan's hammer would make an amazing pkd movie and I oh think yeah politically right now it's the perfect time to do a vulcan's hammer story in the sense of the, the politics really match what's going on in the world today so i think that's one thing i mean you would have to update a lot of the technology and a lot of the things, but what makes Vulcan Vulcan's Hammer a perfect PKD movie is because you could be somewhat faithful to the novel and still make um, a PKD movie in the sense of that fits in with Minority Report, that fits in with Imposter, that fits in. Right. This is. With the, uh, the book itself is one of those movies. <laughs> yeah, it's a paranoid thriller, and um, you can make an action movie and still like put forward all the same ideas. Mm-hmm. And you you punch up two things for me that you would do is you would um, increase the amount of backstabbing between Vulcan two and three in the story. You would increase the paranoia against um, Jason Dill, mm-hmm. like his character. You have more of a, a storyline between um, Dill and Barris for longer. You wouldn't just have Dill just like suddenly have his head explode or whatever <laughs> happens in it. But I think maybe you don't have to be heteronormative about it. You could have a love story between those two guys or whatever, but have more stakes between the two. I think you could gender swap um, Barris to make Barris a woman. I, I, the hell does that matter? Well, I'm just talking about. I just said you, you don't have to do it that way. I'm yeah, just, David, you kind of lost me here. What, did I miss something? <laughs> well, what I'm saying is, I think there needs. When to did be, you get into the gender politics of well, <laughs> making it a movie? What I'm talking about is that I think you need to add more stakes between the dill Barris relationship. Mm. So if you add some kind of, not even, it doesn't even have to be like a romance, but tension, you know, some kind of something between them. It doesn't have to, you don't have to change the genders. Well, I mean, you could do that. I, I'm not going to jump into this, this gender swap we're talking about. Cause I, I don't, 
I don't think it, either way it's fine. Um, but you could build the tension of the fact that they both need each other to kind of accomplish sure. what they want to do. And that's another thing that I didn't think the book really drove forward was the fact that the, they're on opposite sides, but they're both working to ac- working together to accomplish these goals. Yeah. Right. Now, as far as who would actually direct this, my it's funny because you mentioned Ex Machina earlier. My original idea was was Alex Garland, uh-huh. right? <laughs> um, it's a good choice. But we I, all knew it once you didn't say it. Yeah. Um, he would be an interesting choice because I think he could get a lot of the politics, but at the same time, I'm not sure he's the guy to do the action. Who actually directed the Dread movie? Um, Alex Garland. Oh, he didn't direct it, did he? Yeah, he did. Did he? Yeah. No, he just wrote the script. Oh, I'm looking right now. Pete Travis. Yeah, give it to Pete Travis. <laughs> Put the team that made Dread together to do Vulcan's Hammer. Uh, I think it would be great. It, it, it's funny because I, I looked it up just as Larry was reading it, and then it says, Alex Garland actually directed Dread, says Carl Urban. <laughs> Carl Urban confirms Alex Garland actually directed Dread. Sorry, it was oh, kind of so funny. Oh, so he probably took over on the set. Dread, Carl Urban claims Alex Garland was really the film's director. Nice. Okay. Maybe that's why I thought it was him, because I, I probably just heard something like that. But that movie rules. Everybody go watch Dread. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, I did like it a lot, too. So, yeah, so let's give it to Alex Garland, since he can apparently do the action in Dread. Mm-hmm. So let's give it to... Uh, yeah, so if we're just doing Dream Director, I'd say Alex Garland. What about okay. casting? Uh, that's interesting. Um, for Dill, you want somebody charismatic, somebody who's kind of in charge of things, maybe a Chris Evans? We can mm. always cast John Hamm in these Philip K. Dick adaptations, <laughs> you guys. That is so true. That's true. I, uh, personally, for, for Barris, I was thinking Idris Elba. Yeah, yeah, I could definitely see that. Chris Evans and Idris Elba. Well, Chris Evans is too young. I think we need an older guy to go against uh, I would. I would probably cast, I don't know why, but I saw Rosario Dawson as Rachel Pitt. Oh, nice. For whatever reason, maybe maybe it's because I was on a daredevil kick not too long ago, but sure. Um, yeah, I th- I think that's Idris Elba as Barris, and well, now I don't want to do Chris Evans if I'm gonna do Idris Elba, so I need somebody oh. a, li- a little older. Um, I I think Chris Evans would be great as Farmer Ted or whatever his name is. <laughs> Fields. Yes. Yeah. Um, Father Fields. Father Fields. Yeah, uh, he's a much better actor than people give him credit for. I think Chris Evans. Yeah, he's in a Hell or High Water, right? Is he the other brother? No, that I, was Chris Pine. Chris Pine. God, these Chris's. The Chris, Chris Evans. There Chris everywhere. Hemsworth. Chris Pine. You can't fuck can't with the Chris's, okay? And they're Chris all Pratt. three very dreamy. Chris Pratt. Jesus. Yeah. Um, yeah. So well, yeah, I'll stick with Chris Evans for now. Now but, I kind of want Chris Pine. Right. Anyway, go, go, right. Go Chris on. Pine would also be good. In the yeah, um, I'm Farmer Ted. See that new uh, Netflix movie he's got that where he plays the Scottish. But who plays your president of the world? Well, let's switch that. Let's yeah. have yeah. I would it's a good switch, idea. I would switch it. Let's have Idris Elba play the play um, uh, Dill, and then oh, um, I was thinking switch as in switch genders on that one. <laughs> well, you could, but. Um, for right now, I would say Idris Elba plays President of the World Dill, and then um, Barris would be the younger uh, Chris Evans. 
that's how I would cast it. So. I feel for the older... I would feel... Uh, Idr- how old do you think Idris Elba is? He's in his 50s. He looks damn good. Yeah, he looks damn right. good. Well, that's one of the reasons... You have to cast he... someone that looks older, because well, you remember the character is yeah. haggard. And... I could totally see if he were still alive... Oh my god, I'm fucking blanking. Oh my... Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm. In that yeah, role. also a good, good I, I that, that that would probably be my cat my, my dream casting for that role. But how would you okay back so how would you change this story, Anthony? I would expand on the story. I, I think I would keep because this is actually the book that we have that Dick wrote is a pretty good outline for, yeah, a framework. for what yeah. I would say would be a better script and a better movie. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I would keep kind of the the outline and the beats as they are, but fill in a lot of those gaps that I think are missing. I want to see Vulcan 2 and 3 in competition with each other. I want to see a society living under the regime of this surveillance state. I want to see these two men forced to work together who are very paranoid about each other's motives. And I also want to spend more time with this leader who's basically pretending to be a charismatic person in order to achieve an ends when in the reality is is he's the one who's been working on Vulcan 2 and keeping it going this whole time so that so I I, I just had I'm sorry Anthony Uh, the uh no that's fine cut me off the uh the casting for for the Dill character for me I had to look him up but is uh William Fickner you know he's yeah he's everything he's someone who plays a bad guy most of the time and then but I think you kind of want that someone someone who has a uh, uh, that bad guy persona mm-hmm. to play that role for just the reason you're saying is that he he's perceived it as this you know towering power hungry figure but actually he's like doing the hard work mm-hmm. and, and he'd be cheaper than Idris Elba <laughs> <laughs> and, and he would do a and, great and, job. and Rachel actor. Pitt yeah. makes makes this comment that you guys are all just stepping on each other so you can move up Right. into the next position and and I don't think the book shows anything. There's no like conflict between well, these for, two characters. Except for Topman writing the letter. And Topman is honestly a character I kept forgetting about. <laughs> right. Yeah, for real. I because he's not in the story. I mean, yeah. he just pops up well, every and, once in a while as a mention. We get to a certain point and I I have this written down in my book. We get back to Marion Fields and this is when Barris goes back to get her to take him to Father Fields and I wrote I legitimately forgot about this character, you know. <laughs> oh, the girl. Yeah, and and she could, you know, we could we could cast like Chloe Grace Moretz as is Marion Fields or something. Yeah, it doesn't I, it's, yeah, it's, it's it's. But you would have to give her a real role in in the movie. Yeah. Version. Yeah, and and I I would want to I I like the way this everything plays out. It's just for some reason it doesn't do it for it's me. Just flat. Uh, yeah, it it falls flat, and I I think I, I spent a lot of time. Thinking about this, and as much as I would love Sidney Lumet to do it, because I, mm. I'm a big fan of 12 Angry Men, and I think that... Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, great movie. And I, I think that that type of... an he uh, Yeah, he's hella dead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that those are two like very dialogue-driven things, whereas if I were to see all the bureaucratic back and forth in a movie done by, let's say, Sidney Lumet, or maybe even the Coen brothers, I'd probably enjoy it more. Right. David Mamet, that, yes. So if I could get Duncan Jones to direct this based off a script by David Mamet, uh, ooh, I'm Duncan, in. I'm Duncan in. Jones, Duncan Jones would be a great director. And that's, that's my choice. Screenplay, David Mamet. 
directed by Duncan Jones. Whoa, 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 whoa. Screenplay Us. Oh, Screenplay Us. <laughs> With David Mamet. As a producer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Larry? Well, first of all, I, I would put Atlanta in the same city as the uh, <laughs> as the computer. I think we're all so on board I would, that. I would make the computer... Uh, I would make Vulcan 3 sort of the driving force behind, or a hidden driving force between their, uh, or in their reprogramming center. Somehow. You know, I haven't figured out the details. Maybe they send Marion Fields to the reprogramming center. Right, and there's, yeah, there's more stakes there if there's a character that is going through whatever process they go through. And uh, that would be a big deal. So you have your finale where that center is. Oh, and Larry, real quick, I don't want to cut you off, but I think we would have to explore more about the fact that they they they, they removed her skull and right. scrambled her brain and then studied her yeah, brain and then put it back be, in. There would be way more. I feel like that. we need to address this or just not do it at all. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, that's the main thing is just put those sites together mm-hmm. so that it, you could have your finale there. And take care of both of those elements at the same time. And uh, like you said, uh, uh, make sure we know more about all the characters. We see more of the world, all that jazz. And, you know, other than that, follow the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can do all those things. You you want to see the problems that the people are having with uh, Unity. I want to understand why the healers hate Vulcan 3, 1 through 3 as much as they do. But I I would love to see parts of this movie where these two supercomputers are just being petty to each other, Mm -hmm. which I think is awesome. Now, great. Would it still be through the proxies? Yeah, Yeah, through the proxies. Because because the, the computers are just using them as pawns to get at each other. Right. Yeah. And they may not even realize in the beginning they're being used. Mm-hmm. Of course not. And which would make for a great reveal right before you hit your, you know, your third act. Mm-hmm. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Whew, it's almost like we knew what we were doing. <laughs> yeah, that happens a lot. <laughs> and I might, I might have uh, Aaron Sorkin do it. I could see that. <laughs> I'm sure he would love to do Vulcan. <laughs> he, he's not done a lot of action-y type things, but... Well, his new movie, Molly's Game, is supposed to be great. Right. I haven't seen it. I haven't Speaking seen it. Speaking of Idris Elba. And, but he's, uh, you know. You know, whoever directed Neon Blonde might do a pretty decent. I'm sure. Like I didn't a, care for, or no, sorry, Atomic Blonde. Atomic. Excuse me. I knew what you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, thank oh, you. that's the guy from John Wick. Yeah, maybe that. I the don't John know. John Wick guys? It was kind of yeah. boring, but. Yeah, I. Uh, yeah, I see, I. I'm sticking I, with Duncan Jones. Atomic I like Blonde. The, I like the action stuff, but. Uh, in this, and I thought it was really cool, and there should be that kind of action stuff. But I really like the the bureaucracy at the same time. So you need a director that can do both. Yeah, that's the hard part. Yeah. So um, let's talk about what we're doing next time. You may have heard of this one. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Right? I think this is probably one of Dick's lesser works. Yeah, it, maybe you've heard of. It's America in 1962. Slavery is legal once again. The few Jews who still survive hide under assumed names. In San Francisco, the I Ching is as common as the Yellow Pages. 
all because some 20 years earlier the United States lost a war and is now occupied by Nazi Germany and Japan. This harrowing Hugo Award-winning novel is the work that established Philip K. Dick as an innovator in science fiction while breaking the barrier between science fiction and the serious novel of ideas. In it, Dick offers a haunting vision of history as a nightmare from which it may just be possible to wake. So we're doing what, David? Man in the High Castle. So there will be no what would we do when we adapt it in the next <laughs> yeah, one right? because... <laughs> well, we might. Who knows? No, I mean, I, I haven't mean, even it is... seen the show. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think um, this is the big one, the first one that he won an award for. So yep. it's, uh, yeah. Yep. So we're going to have some scheduling changes, but we'll talk about that next time um, when we do Man in the High Castle. So, Which is will be our finale for the first season. Yeah. Yep. You didn't know we had a season. <laughs> you do now. <laughs> season one ends with Man in the High Castle. So, oh, snap. Snap. And uh, on that note, keep it paranoid. Stay paranoid. Do all that par- paranoid stuff, dudes. And dudettes. Later. And others. Good night. And everything. America. Enjoy. Enjoy.